when I'm sort of seeing a few medium-sized challenges on my plate, I do try to reframe it because you could get stuck in it and go, my goodness, my life is falling apart, nothing's working, I'm just not getting anywhere. Instead, I just see it as a little bit of practice for what might be coming ahead because tougher times are always going to potentially be on the horizon, right? I believe that your personal life and your professional life are inherently linked. And when you do the work on both sides, you can become the most successful version of yourself. This is a place where wisdom meets leadership, where success meets spirituality. Welcome to Do the Work with Denise Love Hewitt. Okay, so I have the immense, 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 immense pleasure of introducing Sarah Wilson, who is a multi New York Times, Amazon bestselling author, a podcaster, a thought leader, a minimalist, philanthropist, and climate advisor. And Sarah's very much a pioneer. She built a company that earlier this year, she shut down and donated the proceeds to charity. So this is like pre Patagonia. So we're talking very, very prescient and, you know, leading the charge in being a conscious person and consumer leader in the world. And she wrote this book called This One Wild and Precious Life that I read a couple years ago that I think I bought and sent to every single person that I know because it just so deeply resonated with what I think we need to hear right now and also this idea that we live in supposedly the most connected time than ever, but also the most fractured time, right? The most lonely time. And so obviously dealing with the talking about business and spirituality and leadership and entrepreneurship, I think she has a lot of wisdom to share to sort of help us think about being a thoughtful leader in the world that we live in. So thank you for being here. Uh, it's it's wonderful to join you from the other side of the world. From Australia. <laughs> yeah, from a different season, different hemisphere, different time zone, different day. <laughs> Yeah, she woke up and did this on her Saturday, so we can just be very, very grateful for that. So entrepreneurship is all about edges, and you talk a lot about edges in your book, and I'd love you to define that for us, but also talk about how actually leaning into our edges makes us a happier person. Yeah, um, the edge is super important to me because I think what it does is it gets us a little bit scared. We need grit and we need discomfort to create, to expand, to go to our next level. And that's something that has been really rich from our culture. I know that you talk a lot about technology and I'm sure we're gonna be talking on technology in this discussion, but 90% of technology that has been created in the last 30 years has been all geared towards removing discomfort, not towards you know, saving the planet or you know, curing cancer necessarily. It's really been about getting rid of discomfort. And we are now a whole culture that is not used to going to our edge. And as a result, the statistics play out in the US, in Australia, innovation has dropped. The correlation is very, very real. So going to our edge, I mean, from my point of view, what it does, and I sort of describe it almost in a physical way, using the analogy of a tree. If we stay close to the tree trunk, hugging in close, it's all nice and comfy. We can start, you know, it's sort of cozy. It's a little bit dark. We can sort of see everybody around us. Everybody's doing the same thing. It's a bit suffocating. However, if we go out to the outer limbs of the tree, that is where we feel the action of life, we smell all of the smells, we get the breezes. It's slightly perilous, like 
we've got to actually fend. And that's a word I use quite a lot. We've got to fend. We've got to use our body, our agility to find ways to cope. And it's through that that we come online, we come alive, and then we get innovative and creative. And so can we talk a little bit about while in our edge, this, this deep place of discomfort, we're talking a lot about like cultivating resilience and how do we do that, you know, and I'm a big fan of edges as well, but for people that maybe it's maybe their first time coming to their edge or life hit them and they're, you know, being brought to their knees, how, what is the advice that we can give to help people cultivate better resilience? Yeah, well, Peter Chodron, the wonderful American Buddhist nun, um, has a great phrase and she's like, if you're at your edge, it's where you're meant to be. And again, our culture doesn't teach that to us, right? Like we get told that that's, that discomfort is something that we've got to eradicate. In fact, quite the opposite. Cultures throughout history have told us that that's exactly where we need to be because, and you sort of touched on something there, it actually enables us to build a resilience, right? And it actually prepares us for even harder times, more difficult times that might come towards us down the track. But yeah, it's got so much to do with that piece of information, that dialogue in our culture having been removed in part by technology, but just by, I think, opulence. You know, when you have more opulence, you spend your time trying to find ways to make things a little bit more comfy and cozy. So I think this is something that I really try to share with people is if you're feeling uncomfortable, good. It means that something's happening. It means that it's time for you to rise. Brene Brown once said to me, and that sounds so ridiculously <laughs> wanky, doesn't it? Um, I love <laughs> my dear friend Brene on their podcast. And I'm like, okay. Yeah, well, we're actually, hang, this is pre the invention of podcasts. This is probably about eight, nine years ago. Um, we were in a conference room in Australia and um, we were talking about the fact that she said that when she feels discomfort, she goes, right, this means something is happening. And I think that's a really great piece of phraseology to keep in mind rather than, oh my God, I'm uncomfortable. I've got to eradicate this. I've got to fix it before I can get on with my best life. Instead, if you say, hey, this is exciting, something is coming online, something's happening, I'm being asked to rise to something, we always know there's something there that we need to be rising to. But what we do is we spend all our energy trying to shut it down, cocoon ourselves, protect ourselves, which of course gets us nowhere. We don't, we don't live, we're avoiding, you know? I think life has a way of hitting you that until you listen, it'll keep hitting you. So you might as well listen oh, the first time because it's not even worth like going through the exercise. So as someone who seeks edges or like appreciates that moment, do you ever seek them out or do you wait for them to sort of come to you? It's funny because um, I think I mentioned this in my book, this one, Mild and Precious Life. A friend of mine said to me, you, are you looking for trouble? You seem to be looking for trouble. And there's, there's a side of me that does because I've worked out this little secret, you see, this little secret that when you go to your edge, you get results, right? So I, I kind of know that when I'm a bit blah, I'm uninspired, I'm in a rut, I'll actually go and find challenges. So I do it physically. I think that's actually a very easy way to do it. So I took up ocean swimming. I'm a really bad swimmer. Like I spend all of my energy trying to just stay afloat. And I took up ocean swimming. This was a little while back in some of the sharkiest water in Australia. And look, there's other people doing it. I make sure I swim, 
you know, not the furthest out. There's a bunch of old blokes swimming out, you know, a little bit out further than me. And it scares me and I like the feeling of it. I also go hiking, as you know, we just offline, we, we talked about that. I, um, I will often go hiking and I'll fling myself into an area where I don't really know the lay of the land. I don't know the maps. I, I, and I'll do it in an area where I'll probably have to hitchhike or do something radical and scary to get home. So I do inject a little bit of that, but I also, I can also feel it in me that when things have got a little bit too easy, I'm like, right, it's time for me to create and to invent. And I'll send the scary email to the person I've been thinking about connecting with for some time to suggest a business proposition. I'll do that email. I'll, I'll do a few things like that to inject that vibrancy back into the equation. Great answer, because I was gonna say, like, I am someone who am like a little risk averse in life, because I feel like I'm very risk averse in like business. So I'm like, that is my where I seek my edges. I would definitely not be getting in shark infested waters. But I think you're exactly <laughs> no. I think you could not even pay me. You could offer me all the money in the world. I'd be like, absolutely not. Um, I think it's very, very. It's good to bring in both sort of parts of the equation, which is like edges are everywhere. They're not just in these sort of adrenaline seeking activities, but it's also in the sort of maybe small thing. And like for me, that even came to like through family healing, having a difficult conversation with my parent or something like that, that felt scary, that allowed me to sort of, you know, live on that edge. And so I think that's such a great way to frame it. Do you think that resilience even is a really, muscle? Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, there's even smaller, more municipal kind of things that you can do, granular stuff. Like, you know, if you walk to the same coffee shop each day, walk a different way or try another coffee shop or try saying hello to the barista. Do something, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt said it very famously, do something that scares you every day, but it can be something really small and you'll be amazed how many beautiful interactions and expansions will come out of it. So as you say, it could be just doing that difficult phone call to a family member, but it can also be really pleasant things like things that feel more like an adventure, like literally walking a different way to the coffee shop. Yeah, I love that. I love that. It feels very like tactical. So do you think yeah. that resilience is a muscle? Oh, I do. Absolutely. I think the science also shows that that is the case. In fact, there's so much about our brains, which are all about building up muscle. And I think that so many of our rituals throughout history have been geared towards building up that muscle so that we are prepared for more difficult times. And so when I'm sort of seeing a few medium-sized challenges on my plate, I do try to reframe it because you could get stuck in it and go, my goodness, my life is falling apart. Nothing's working. I'm just not getting anywhere. Instead, I just see it as a little bit of practice for what might be coming ahead because tougher times are always going to, to potentially be on the horizon, right? Yep. Might as well fire up, bulk up, muscle up. The one thing I'd say to that is, you also do reach an age, I'm approaching 50 now, and you do reach an age where you do have to let go of this idea that your life is a run-up, that it's a dress rehearsal, that it's all about gearing yourself towards some big grand moment where life is going to happen. You get older and you go, this is the real thing better be happening now. And in fact, you go, this is the real thing. This is probably as good as it gets. Um, and I'm actually very happy with that. The wonderful thing about getting older is that your life does get better because you've got better life skills and you've got better philosophies for seeing it all through. But there is also an art to ensuring that you see beauty in the resilience building. You don't see it as a thing you've got to do so you can get to the good stuff. So it's a bit like 
going to the gym, try to enjoy going to the gym rather than just thinking about when you're going to have that six pack. I mean, that's a really basic analogy, but I think um, that's how I try to live my life. I try to see all the practices as the enjoyable bit, the bit that actually gives me my life force. I think that's really beautiful. A big shift for me in my work life came from being less outcome focused and more process focused. Um, when it tried yes. for a long, long time to control the outcome and it didn't work, so might as well start enjoying the process. And through that, right, you, you start to become more fully awake, more present, and then that's where the, the juice lives. And I realized I spent all this time seeking achievement and outcome, and I missed all the good parts of it. Like I was just, because once you get the next thing, you're looking for the next thing. And it was like, actually, if I can just sit here and enjoy each day, then all of a sudden I don't need to be focusing on the next destination because I feel like I've already arrived. Exactly. Exactly. And look, what I would add to that, I, as you know, wrote a book about anxiety called for first we make the beast beautiful and the secrets in the title. It's like, let's make this thing anxiety, a wonderful, beautiful, and really productive thing, like reframe it. Then we can see that we don't need to eradicate or get on top of our anxiety before we can live a good life. And that's, that's sort of the gist of the book is actually reframing the anxiety as something that is actually rewarding, enriching and important now. We don't have to become a different person to feel like we're having a great, fulfilling life. Um, and I think that can apply to all kinds of things. And once I learned that secret, my life just got actually more bountiful because I wasn't waiting. I didn't have that kind of purgatory mindset. Yeah, it's all these like secrets. I, I read this book, Power Versus Force, which I'm, you're probably familiar with. And it was that, that sort of idea that I was like, why have I taken so long to read this book? It's just been here the whole time. And it's just those small secrets that then fundamentally change how you show up. So we're gonna talk a little bit about technology. I know you and I share some similar thoughts. And so for people that are in the business of building technology, how can we think about technology to build more conscious products? Look, I, it's an interesting one because at the moment I'm a little bit obsessed and fascinated by transhumanism, which is this big movement where, you know, with AI taking over our ability to formulate uh, creations and solve problems and so on and so forth. It's a huge area and quite honestly, it terrifies me. But one of the things that terrifies me about it is there's so little forethought. There are so few people who are actually sitting back and going, hang on guys, do we want a world where robots take over from us? You know, there's nobody actually in a committee room having these discussions. There's no moral ethicists in, you know, sort of tacking on to Elon Musk's work, you know. So, it's a huge issue and part of the reason we land in so many problems today, you know, look at social media. Sure, it was a great idea, but did anyone think 20 years ahead about the ramifications on social connection, children's minds, bullying, um, trolling, all of that kind of thing? So I think there needs to be a lot more forethought put into any kind of tech development. Now, that's a very idealistic notion who's going to sit down with these, you know, tech bros in Silicon Valley and go, hey, guys, let's just sit in this conference room with the whiteboard and map out how this is going to vibe out in a couple of decades, you know. But I think we're starting to realise that this kind of thing needs to be happening and really it's probably not going to happen within the market system. It needs to come from government intervention. Unfortunately, governments around the world are lagging. They're playing catch-up. They're trying to patchwork, you know, breaches of privacy and, and a whole range, you know, competition laws. They're sort of 
really kind of following behind what's happening in tech. But if there is there are tech leaders out there developing any kind of product, I, I really encourage them so that they don't have to lie at, and stare at the ceiling and have dark soul, you know, night of the soul um, moments down the track to think about the moral repercussions of anything that they're developing. I don't know what the solution though is because the horse is well and truly bolted on this one. Okay, but let's let's just take a scenario. So say I'm a founder who actually took the time to do an exercise and say, okay, let's talk about this business, let's future-proof it, let's talk 30 years in the future, let's walk through all the different scenarios. But we can't predict the future, right? So even with the most best intentions, how can we be like more prescient? How can we, this is like the big question I have because I don't, I personally don't believe, could Mark Zuckerberg have done more checking on every side to, you know, figure out that maybe this could become a divisive platform. Yes. But I don't believe the intention was that. I don't think he could have predicted what happened. So like, I, I want to be able to give entrepreneurs like things to really think about deeply as they're building so we can sort of do our best to future proof knowing that like we may not be able to predict the future or what those repercussions might be, but really what are the sort of the key pieces we can really start mulling on? Well, I think where you start and where the intention is, is where you will often head out. And when I set up my business, I quit sugar. We had six mantras on the wall and every single decision we made went through that lens, you know, and there were things like give a shit. So does it give a shit? Do we give a shit about this? Does it actually suggest that to the world? Does it say to the world that this is worth giving a shit about and so on? So we had a whole range of mantras and I think businesses talk this, but I would encourage them to stick to it as they grow and progress. But look, what we need to do is ensure social connection. And I know Mark Zuckerberg started out with that as an intention or at least ostensibly. I think we need to ensure that the, the glues, fundamental things that have existed for eons are preserved. So we had the church, we had the state, we had unions, we had all these structures. We were smart enough as humans to set up structures that ensured that our selfish individualistic tendencies didn't run rampant. So as humans, we don't have fangs. We don't run particularly fast. We are not a particularly ferocious, agile species, but what we've always had is an ability to cooperate. And that is what has seen us rise to the top of the food chain. And we did that because we're very individualistic, but if our individualistic urges ran rampant, we wouldn't actually be able to form these cooperative groups that enabled us to beat the tigers and the elephants and all of that kind of thing. Um, and we did that via these structures, the church, that would ensure that there was a Sabbath. We had a day of rest so that we didn't go mad with our 24-7 kind of on, on, on brains. We had trade unions that did the same thing. So we had these structures. And so what I would say is we need those structures because I would say the tech world tends to represent our individualistic thinking run rampant. And that's how the market works. I think the solution is to bring back in some of these government or external structures that preserve the collective interest, because we need to find that beautiful tension to survive. And this is what neoliberalism has done. We've gone, great, the market forces can just go and determine things all very well, but it's actually spelling our demise because we need the collective to ensure that we don't actually eat ourselves up in our own Petri dish, which is what's happening with the climate crisis. It's what's happening with AI, biotech, nuclear developments. 
if we don't have these structures in place, then it's a real problem. So what I would say to tech leaders is to be supportive of these structures. They might seem um, problematic in the first instance, but they are for the good of the planet and to ensure and, and humanity. So look, I think it's very, very difficult to retrofit some of our thinking and the lessons we've learned from technology so far of the last 30 years, but we do need to put in place these guardrails these moral guardrails. I don't think the market can do that on its own. That's my take. I know other people would disagree. No, I love it. I just love collecting these types of thoughts. I think it's stuff we really need to talk about and think about. And so you are recently an ambassador to a tech company. I would love if you could talk about why you decided to do that. Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's called We Are Eight number eight. And in fact, um, an incredible woman, she's actually Australian, but she was based in New York for, I think, about 10, 15 years. She developed this ad technology for, you know, the advertising industry to actually collect data uh, from click-throughs on various tech platforms. So she knows the realm very well. She got sick sick of the way that advertising worked and built this model that flips it all on its head. She spent years and years going, could we do this better? The way the model works is it essentially, so as a viewer, I can choose to click on an ad. If I choose to click on it and watch it, it's quite interactive. It's generally geared towards sustainable messages, that kind of thing. I get paid to watch the ad. Then I get the wallet and it builds up cash. And then I get invited to donate that to charities. So it's a real reversal of things. And then you get liked and you can get lots of sort of kudos for donating your money. That's what you get the kudos for. So it flips everything on its head. So instead of getting likes for your vanity and narcissism, which is a horrible, horrible vortex to be caught in, you get liked for actually behaving as the kind of human you'd like to be, if that makes sense. So look, it's relatively new. It's just launched in Australia. In fact, the official launch, the hard launch is in November. It's big in the UK. And the aim is to get to 8 million people who are donating, I think, a dollar a week. That's $8 million a week. That can actually feed the planet just to solve one problem. You know, I think think when we're encouraged, and that's an example of how forethought put I guess, guardrails in place that steers the cognitive dissonances of the human experience to good things. And I think that's what we're craving right now, don't you think? Like we're we're not naturally inclined. In fact, we've been so skewed in one direction that we've lost the ability to choose the better way to actually rise to our best selves. And we need help to do that. We need structures. We need, as I say, moral guardrails. And I think This piece of technology has done that. It's a really good example of what we're talking about, I think. No, I love that. I think that when we, what's hard about working within the system that we have is that when you invent, say, a new financial model, right, or a new way of doing things, you're met with a lot of resistance around, we've never seen that type of model before. But to live in the world we want to live in, we're going to have to push, the innovation has to come from different places. And I think what we've seen over time is this sort of pattern matching happening in innovation that we need to sort of break free from to really create different types of products and they could be tech products that create better outcomes right but i think that we have to move away from sort of the formula that works because as we've seen it's like not working as well and so you don't totally agree yeah you do so much climate sort of education work and when you're in the cycle of trying to create systemic shift it's incredibly challenging and so whether you're building a new business and trying to educate someone or you're trying to create systemic shift 
How do you stay generative in that process? Mm, that's a great question. And I think anybody who's been an activist or anybody who's tried to push against the status quo in any kind of way knows the feeling of what works? Like, how am I going to get through to people? Like, and I think uh, you sort of do the full circle. You know, you sort of do the, the micro stuff where you think like, if I can get everyone to recycle, that'll open their eyes and then it'll go up river. Then I go up river and I try to work with politicians and BlackRock insurance, you know, like I go to the top and then you sort of go, well, they're only going to listen if everybody down here is changing their ways and pressuring, you know. So it is the full cycle. One thing I would say, having been in this space of change making and really suggesting changes that people don't want to do, like quitting sugar. If I'd said quit, I quit broccoli, I reckon, you know, my job would have been a hell of a lot easier. But um, I quit sugar. I sort of went for the hard one there. And also tackling anxiety. And then, of course, the climate crisis ahead of, I suppose, where we're at now, where there's a lot more discussion in the space. But what I would say is that, first of all, you've got to find a way to find it joyful yourself. So be the message, yes, but on top of that, you've got to be the message and make it sexy because you genuinely enjoy it. So, you know, if you're denying yourself X, Y, Z. So, you know, we were talking before, weren't we? You know, you love fashion. You love the process of expressing yourself through clothing. Um, if you're denying yourself that, then you're not going to be a great pinup inspirational kind of personage for the movement. You've got to find a way that makes it flowy, joyful, elegant, expressive. So that's what I do. You know, everything I do, I ensure that I love doing it and I try to make it look sexier. And you can see that I was the editor of Cosmo for many years. So I have to use this language, but I've got to make it sexier than the status quo. So I go out hiking and I'm not doing it to sort of, you know, flog myself. I do it because I love it. And all I do is share messaging in and around how wonderful it is. Ditto with the fact that I wear the same clothes over and over again. I don't make a big song and dance of it. I just wear it and I kind of try to make myself look like I'm happy while I'm doing it, you know? No, you do. So you I seem extremely joyful in it, which is why I'm always like, maybe I need to, I mean, I work on it, but I'm always like, she's having a great time in these outfits in her one yeah. little bag. And I'm saving so much time and stress and kind of palaver. Like, that's what I love. Like, I can just get on with things. I've just got this flow. I can arrive into Paris with my carry-on bag. I get straight onto a Lime scooter. I get to my Airbnb and I'm in a, on a date with a really hot Parisian guy within an hour, you know. I mean, that's the way you can get things done. Um, as I say, I try to sell it in. If you're Sarah Wilson, yes, yes. <laughs> The commercial background um, speaks, I suppose. So I think we need to be doing that. The other thing I would say is that we need to be aware that dramatic change, big um, change comes about with lots of micro movements. And I think what happens is a lot of people enter the sphere of a difficult issue and feel that they've got to get this sort of hyper view of the hyper object and then they've got to then move forward. So a lot of I hate to say it, blokes into the realm and go, right, I'm going to open the new charity. I'm going to launch the new um, app that's going to solve everything. And it's like, yeah, good luck to you there. Like that's not going to actually get anywhere. What we've got to do is accept that all these little movements actually start to shift the dial. And so if you're even a small piece in all of this, great. And if you're entering it from upriver or downriver, it doesn't matter. Your place in this is important and you will be able to grow it and have success 
difference if you stand in it with conviction and belief and you're actually joyfully engaged in it. We worry way too much about finding the singular solution to our problems. There's not one. There was a whole, if I can use this language, it's an ex-army term, clusterfuck of things that got us into this mess. It's going to have to take a similar clusterfuck of stuff to get us out of it. And it's going to mostly be mindset. I really do believe that. That is going to be the critical energetic force that will get us there. And then it'll be a whole heap of apps, inventions, movements, from all different realms working at the same time so, to move the behemoth beast in the right direction. I agree with you. I think it's a lot of, we want instant gratification, but so much of this work is small building blocks that equate to a larger change over time. And we're used to in our culture, right? The lack of discomfort, instant gratification. So you talked about mindset. You have a specific ritual that you do to get yourself in a specific mindset to be joyful in the work and to, you know, continue it in the way that you have across a multiple, you know, verticals. So would you talk to us a little bit about your ritual and like how it informs you and how it works for you? I have a bunch, but I think a morning ritual is one that, you know, gosh, I mean, we've been talking about that for years. I remember, do you remember about 10 years ago, everyone was obsessed with blogs that were about people's morning routines. It was just a thing. And everyone wrote books about it. And every podcast or interview you heard with people, they'd talk about, you know, oh yes, I meditate. However, there is a lot of science behind it. And it's based around decision theory that's been done out of MIT. Um, And I've spoken to it quite a number of the researchers, the original researchers that looked into all of that. Having to make lots of decisions, particularly in the morning, actually uses up a whole heap of the part of the brain that also controls anxiety. So the flight or fight mechanism, the two parts of the brain evolve together, they, and they, one taxes the other. So if you're making too many decisions, you get anxious. If you're anxious, you can't make decisions. So it's a horrible, vicious cycle. The way to break it is to make less decisions. So that's the science behind the morning routine, which sees Barack Obama, he had two suits throughout the entirety of his presidency. Mark Zuckerberg has what, you know, two types of t-shirts, one type of jeans, you know, and they all work to the same. Exactly. Exactly. They all work to the same science. And I also have, I I say in my book, all these experts that I spoke to, the one thing, other thing they have in common is they have a boring breakfast. So there's none of this, oh, I might have some eggs Benedict and I'll have a chia pudding and I'll have avocado on toast. Like they just eat the same thing because the less decisions you've got to make in the morning, the better. So routinize or create certainty anchors is the terminology that's used. So me personally, I get up, I exercise pretty much straight away. So I'll either get out of the house and you know, I live near the beach at Bondi, a sand run, and I live at the beach and Bondi for a very particular reason. It's about setting up these structural um, provisions that enable me to live this kind of life. So I sand run, I swim across the bay with the sharks. Um, <laughs> and if anyone wants to tr- check out an app just to see the sheer number of sharks at Bondi, it's called, I think it's called Drone Shark App. Uh, nobody's been bitten for a couple of years. So, hey, you've, you know, the, the, the odds are in your favour. But um, so I, I do that or I'll just do a simple workout at home. I have to confess I've got a little bit of Stockholm syndrome from COVID where we all had to exercise at home. So I do a little bit of that still. I then meditate. You're meant to do it for 20 minutes. I do it for 10, 15 minutes because, like, I'm too impatient. I just like to do everything the speed version. That's what works for me. I I don't like sticking to rules. So I do do 10 to 15 minutes and then I get on with my day. 
I will go through emails and I write out what I need to be doing. So they're sort of the basic things that I'll do, but then I'll also exercise a second time during the day. That's part of my routine. There's other things I do as well that sort of ensure that I stay on track. You know, my eating, for instance, you know, I hate being told what to do, which is ironic given that I ran a program um, trying to get people off sugar, but I will not, if anyone says to me, you can tell them they can't tell you. Well, what I did was it's called I Quit Sugar, right? I Quit Sugar. I gave it a go. I did the deep dive into all the research on, and how to actually shift your brain chemistry and physicality so that you can quit sugar. You do what you want, you know. So people say, oh, should I do this? Should I do that? I'm like, you do what you want. If you're asking me what I do. So um, I should also point out I eat two to three squares of 90% cacao dark chocolate every morning for breakfast, Um, And I also drink a glass of red wine most evenings. So, yes, I don't like rules. I don't like too much denial. So I allow all of these things. And I will go off the rails a little with my eating where it starts to affect my ability to think clearly and to live the life I really want to be living, especially as you get older. Anybody who's sort of over the age of 40 will know what I mean. You, You know, the stuff that you talk about in your 30s that you should do once you hit 40 you ha- it's non-negotiable, right? You've got to do this stuff to actually be able to get up and be vertical in the morning. So, yeah, I, I sort of veer off a little bit and then I recorrect, um, at, you know, by having two quiet nights in where I'm eating vegetables and protein, you know, that kind of thing and lots of olive oil. So I have a number of practices that I know work for me, but I think the really important thing for anyone who's developing their own routine, their own structures and practices, you've got to be able to pull back and I call it sitting further back from the cinema in the cinema. You can sit really close up to the cinema screen where it's all the actions there and you're t- totally caught up. You know, when you're so caught up at work, you cannot stop thinking about anything else but work and it's everything and people can't even get through to you. Then some people completely check out. So the yogis that have been meditating for too long, they're like, they're not even in the room enjoying the show, right? They're just kind of off out the back somewhere in some other realm. You've got to find the sweet, your sweet spot in the cinema. And sometimes it requires moving a few seats forward, a few seats back. And to do that, you've got to be able to have a practice that sees you coming back to yourself and going, all right, am I wobbly right now? Am I too close to the action? Am I gripping and, and not seeing the woods for the trees, you know? Do I need to back off and do have a day of rest to regroup, refocus? The day of resting is also really important. There's a um, dopamine fasting tradition that happens in Silicon Valley and Bill Gates does this, a bunch of them do it. It's an hour a day of no dopamine stuff. So emails, um, dating app, pings, etc. Then a day a week, the Sabbath, in the olden days, and then a week, a year of absolute shutdown. Some of them take it to the extent of no eye contact and no sex. I don't recommend those practices myself. Um, you can do it in a far more charming way, far more enjoyable way. But I think there's a lot to be said for that, that idea of pulling back so that you can regroup, refocus, and then go back out there again with the kind of energy that you choose to put out where you're not sitting too close to the cinema screen. And so walking and hiking is a big piece of that for you, right? So can you just talk us through sort of like how hiking for you keeps you connected to yourself? But I'm a big believer that for me, there's a recipe for creativity and a big piece of it is, you know, new stimuli, space and stillness. Everyone has their own sort of version of that. But 
that sort of when I'm walking in a new city or somewhere I'm traveling, for me, that's usually when I have the time and space to allow creativity to seep in because I'm not running and chasing after the day-to-day -day work stuff. So I would love you to just elaborate mm. sort of on your ritual with hiking. What you touch on there goes back to the edge stuff, isn't it? And scaring yourself a little. Like shake up the snow cones so that you can see things in a fresh light. And walking in a new city is a great way to do it, right? It's not particularly um, scary, but it gets you fresh eyes. But look, I think the secret to most things is to not own a car. And that is then forcing you to walk everywhere. Walking, I looked into, there's about 40 to 45,000 studies that have been done around the world to show how walking has these incredible benefits, not just for your health and for things like decreasing cancer rates, um, Alzheimer's, ADHD. In South Korea and Japan, walking in nature is actually part of their health policy and part of the health treatment for kids with ADHD. And there's buses that ship kids out to the forest as a first step for trying to combat ADHD or treat it, I should say. So, yeah, it's a very, the science is taken very seriously. And in the US as well, there are some states that are drawing on. I think California has used it quite heavily um, for some of the health, the local health policies. But um, there's, you know, I looked at a lot of the studies um, and sort of paraphrased some of them so that readers don't have to go down the same rabbit hole. But some of the ones that I love that speak to some of the things that you've just mentioned there, walking goes at the same pace as discerning thought. So our brains emerged into the human brain, like a much bigger brain than our predecessors, when we put one foot in front of the other, as opposed to being on all fours. So the walking motion developed a part of our brain which is the part of the brain that controls discerning thought, which is what distinguishes us from the rest of the animal kingdom. And so to access that part of the brain, walking does that, right? Also, it's a very calming thing, so it enables that more expansive um, thinking. So if you want to calm a baby, they've done studies that show that a baby is calmed at the rocking pace that best emulates the average pace of a woman walking in nature. I mean, it's just, you know, there's all these correlations that make a hell of a lot of sense. And then fractals, our eyes are made up of these fractals, these repeated patterns. And when we see the fractals in nature, whether it's a palm, you know, a palm tree frond or flowers or the rings of a tree, these beautiful patternings that are repeated over and over again, there's this congruence that happens in our brains. And so it creates this sense of belonging, which again expands our thinking and enables much fresher thinking. So hiking in nature works and 20 minutes is enough. Even hiking around the streets of your city, suburbia, it will also have an impact. It's dialed up that little bit more when you walk in nature. So don't question it. If you're having a day where you're not clear or you're feeling anxious or depressed, just hike. I mean, it's it works. You don't have to question it. You'll get back and go, I don't know how that happened, but I'm feeling better. Um, and that is very much part of my routine. And so much so that, as I say, I don't own a car because I have to walk everywhere. And like you, my thinking, my creative thinking, so I always have my phone with me and I have to do voice memos as I'm walking. Oh, yeah. You know, yep. like, and I won't say the, hey, Siri, because my phone is switched off, but you know, something somewhere will respond going, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've um, never I've never been a Siri um, girl. I still to this day don't use it. So 
Oh, well, I do it to save my thumbs. They're so sore. But, yes, I do voice memos um, to remind myself of the thinking, you know, so that I can capture those thoughts. I mean, Nietzsche and some of these incredible thinkers, Vincent van Gogh, they used to have a notebook at all times and they walked to create. And, in fact, Nietzsche, on the top of his walking staff, had a little hole where he had a bit of paper and a pencil so Mm. that he could sort of walk and, and take notes. Well, I actually love this because I think it's really, you touched on something really important is that a lot of time we get these like kernels of ideas throughout the day. And if we don't write them down, we forget them. And they all build to something like an idea. I write them all down too now that I'm in the, I'm in the very, very, very nascent stages of writing a book. And um, so it's yes. like, you have to write, like, you know, all these little things come to you. So you write yes. them down and then I'm just like, I don't know what they mean, but I write them down. But I didn't do that prior in sort of my business life. And I think it's something that now I'm understanding the power of it. So I just want to like leave everyone with that takeaway because I actually think it's a really, really good note to get in the habit of just writing it down, even if it seems innocuous, because it may not yeah. be. And actually one of the big epiphanies of my company, so I had an entertainment tech company and we were trying to make Hollywood more inclusive through reverse engineering to data, like through data. And in the beginning of building that company, we did a focus group with like 20 year olds. And these 20 year olds, when the process, they were like reading it, looking at a screenplay on our platform and they were like, courier font sucks. And I was like, yeah, yeah, we know, we know, we know. And I wrote it down, Hmm. didn't know why I wrote it down. And then two years later, I was like, courier font sucks. Oh my God, courier font sucks. I was like, we have to reinvent the screenplay. And it was like this whole crazy thing that happened from like writing this thing down that I remembered to write down that then informed like the pivot of our business. And so that's, you know, I think it's a really, really key small thing to remember for Mm -hmm. everyone to take away because I think it's really powerful. Also having a notebook next to your bed because quite often when you're falling asleep, some of these ideas will come to you and you just have to put a couple of words there that will jog something in the morning. And it's, I think it is really important to do that. It's messy. We feel that it doesn't make sense. Like how, you know, um, but it's, you revisit it and you place some structure around it. And I think that's the thing about creativity is again, we live in this sanitized world. We think everything's linear creativity doesn't work that way. And it reminds me actually of um, this, you know, that one, uh, Jerry Seinfeld's got that show on Netflix, uh, Comedians Getting Coffee in Cars or something. And there's an episode he does with Dave Chappelle and he talks to Dave about how inspiration strikes and so on. And he describes it as inspiration pulls up in the car outside and you might be, you know, in your pyjamas about to eat your breakfast and it's like too bad, you've got to hop in. Like they honk, inspiration honks the horn. You got to get out there, and you know you can't change your clothes or you know bring your cereal with you and eat it in the front seat. You just got to get in it when it arrives. Just just be ready with your piece of paper and your pen. I love it, Sarah. This has been exceptional and such a treat. And before we close, I have five rapid fire questions I want to ask you, and just let your intuition guide you. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? That everything will be okay and, in fact, the worse that things feel right now, the better the outcome down the end because of the work it'll take to get there. What is the last book you read? Well, I'm currently reading John Fowles' The The Magus. I found it Mm. in a Greek Mm. Airbnb and it's, yeah, it's very, it's good writing. I like 1950s male American writing. It's a thing. What are you, what are you struggling with right now? Oh my goodness. I, uh, look, I'm actually struggling with where the second half of my life is going to head. Mm. Just a small one. Um, but I am looking <laughs> at moving overseas. Yeah, it is a very big existential crisis. Um, I want, I want to create big. I want to actually shift things. And I know that the next level I've got to go to is going to take some really, really serious 
maturity. And it's going to take all the stuff I bang on about and write about in my books. I'm going to have to live it. I'm going to have to not tell everyone about it. I'm going to have to have very quiet moments where I look at myself hard in the mirror and go, Sarah, do the hard stuff. It's a big leap that is ready for me to take. Um, I'm on the edge and I've got to do the jump without the wings and trust that the wings will arrive. They will arrive. I know that. What? Are, what they do? do. I know that. Too. Yeah, they, you will be fine. I'm not worried, but I, I hear everything you're saying. But I'm excited to witness. What is bringing you joy right now? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, it's always nature. It is always nature, but nature has um, flipped for me because we are having another flooding event here. We've had three years of natural disasters. And so I'm having to experience nature in different ways and be so grateful for it when I can get out there. National parks in Australia have been wiped out. You, they're not accessible. Um, you know, we lost 20 to 30% of all of our bushland in Australia in those fires. I know in the States you're having similar issues with um, with various natural disasters. So, yeah, I'm having to really appreciate the perilousness and the delicateness of nature um, as it exists in its imperfect form at the moment. But it still brings me incredible joy. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Well, I can't say it's the best piece, but it's the one that rings around in my head a lot is that Rolling Stones song. You can't always get what you want, but sometimes you get what you need. And that takes radical trust. The other one that's sort of a little related, my meditation teacher, who's been with me forever, has said, um, he always says, get your filthy mitts off it, Sarah. As in, like, I grip too hard. And he's like, release the grip, get your hands off it. And that is one of the most effective techniques when I am caught in a rut. I'm not joking. You might remember the bit in the book where I release this. It's not a very rapid fire answer, I know, but you release, I, I released the grip, went off and just dropped my computer. I just went, I'm not even looking at emails. And um, I'd been firing off all these emails to Oprah and Maria Shriver to, to, be, to interview for my book. And I'd just been getting rejections or no answers and I was going mad with it. And I went, right, I'm going to go and sit in the cafe for two hours. I'm not going to touch my technology. So I got to the cafe and I get a ping from my agent saying, hey, Maria Shriver, she can't do the interview. She's traveling. And I was like, yeah. I got stalled at the cafe with these various things happening. And about an hour later, I get up to pay. Maria Shriver walks into the cafe I'm sitting in. Like this is in Sydney, Australia. She lives somewhere in L.A., so anyway, I went and told Maria Shriver the story and she said, do you still need to talk? And I went, no, I've got my story. It's good. The story's good enough. <laughs> that's, wow. what happens. that's what happens when I release my hands, you know, when I stop gripping life, the, the flow comes through and strange stuff happens. The coolest yeah. stuff happens. And I think your meditation teacher and my therapist would get along because my therapist told me to stop gripping my dreams by their neck. And I said, okay, <laughs> gotta let them breathe. Um, yeah, paid good money. Um, but anyways, this has been yeah. such a treat, Sarah. I'm so thrilled you exist. I'm so thankful you took the time today. Thank you. I've loved it. Thank you. And now for our takeaways. Go to our edges. Yes, Sarah Wilson talks about this all the time in her book and obviously on this episode. But going to our edges is the way to not only know yourself, to grow, but to really become. And she gave us so many good ways to do that on this episode from just, you know, small ways to bigger ways, whether they're physical, whether they're spiritual. She really gave us the blueprint here. 
we need to shift from individual thinking to collective thinking. And I could not agree more. I think this individualism or the idea of the individual being more important than the collective has gotten us into a place where we have seen some really fractured things, not only in our daily relationships, but in our government and our globe. And if we could see from COVID, we are obviously all very interlinked. And this is a big, big mindset shift. I hope we can start to adapt. And I loved this one because this is one that has plagued me many times in my work life is make the change work sexy and joyful. Make it sexy. It is so hard when you're doing change work, so hard to stay generative. And I, Sarah does make it sexy. I mean, she's the exact embodiment of this. And I just can't drive it home more is how can you really shift the change work so you don't become depleted, but rather it energizes you through making it really, really enticing to the people you're speaking to who you want to change. Little movements shift the dial. We underestimate constantly what our small contributions can do to equate to a bigger change. This one's really important because your place in the change work is incredibly important. Routinize your life for certainty anchors. I love this because the more that we anchor ourselves in routine, the more we can stay in alignment. This is a really good, helpful tip to finding our daily alignment. And the last one that I really, really loved, get your filthy mitts off it. Get your filthy mitts off it so you can let your dreams unfold as they were meant to unfold. This podcast is one of the most nourishing things that I do with my time. And it could not be possible without a select few people who really have put their time and energy to make this this podcast live. So thank you, Wine Design, South by Southwest Innovators Fund, Lenny Skolnick, and Young Scorp Social. You guys really are the unsung heroes of this podcast, the little pod that could. I thank you so, so much and can't wait to hear all of your feedback on this amazing season.